If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians verses 1 through 9. We are starting uh, a new series this fall. We'll be uh, working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I've entitled our time this morning, uh, A Great Introduction to a Not-So-Great Church. A Great Introduction to a Not-So-Great Church. Uh, Just the origin story of the church in Corinth can be read in Acts chapter 18. In Acts 18, we learn that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jewish couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who had been kicked out of Rome under the rulership of Claudius, who was persecuting Jews. And so they resettled in Corinth, and Paul went to Corinth, and Paul lived with them. Uh, They were tent makers by trade, and so Paul moved in, and uh, because of the uh, Olympic-like games in Corinth and also it being a a, a seafaring city, there was a lot of work to do, and so Paul stayed there. But the greatest work was not uh, fixing tents. Uh, The greatest work that Paul did there by the Spirit was to plant a church. It was there in Corinth after a rough season of ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul and told him, Fear not, go on speaking, do not be silent. I am with you, and no one will attack you. I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stayed in Corinth. Acts tells us he stayed there for 18 months, and he preached the gospel. The Jews, by and large, rejected the gospel, and so he preached to the Gentiles, and they believed, and that church was birthed. Roughly three years later, Paul was probably in Ephesus, and things were not going so well in the church in Corinth. The unity that was theirs in Jesus was being threatened. What God had joined together was uh, on the brink of being torn apart. And that problem was not from the outside. The problem was the inside. It was being destroyed by the very people who call themselves Christians. They were overly formed by the culture and the city and underformed by the cross and the gospel. And let us not think too highly of ourselves. This can never happen to us. This can never happen to Redeemer. This can never happen to me. It can. People are fundamentally the same in our day as in their day. The human heart has not changed. We may have better technology, more money, more knowledge, but our hearts are the same. Our city may be different than Corinth, but the world and the culture around us is still hostile to God and the things of God. We still battle the flesh, the world, and the devil. And the good news is that someone else is the same. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul deeply believes that what God has joined together, no one can put asunder. Not even Christians who are immature. The church will stand. The church will endure. And 1 Corinthians really is a letter on God's faithfulness. How will he care for, unify, and sanctify this divided church? So let's read God's word. We'll jump into the intro, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, And this may be the same Sosthenes in Acts 18, who was a ruler of the Jewish synagogue, who was beaten. And if so, then this brother has now become a follower of Jesus. And Paul is like, hey, that dude who loved, who was following the Torah, who ran the the, the synagogue, 
He's now on Team Jesus. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, it buoys our souls. It gives encouragement to the downcast. It gives uh, pastors joy, joy that you are building your church and you will keep your church in your care, that she is yours. And we are pleased, but for a season, Lord, to be faithful to you in the care of her. And so, Father, I pray that as we read your word and now meditate upon it and, and talk about it, that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes and we would behold the wonderful things from your law. And Father, I also pray for forgiveness of sins, that if we say we have no sins, then we lie and we make you a liar. And you are faithful, Lord, to cover and heal and forgive. And so do that for your servant and for your people here. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the Apostle Paul... Uh, added about 32,407 words to your Bible. 11,307 are written to one church. That's over one-third of everything Paul wrote in the Bible went to one church in one city, and it's the Corinthians. That's a lot of ink. Some would say that this is the not-so-great church. Here's a list of what was happening in Corinth. They disrespected his authority. They didn't think he was a good preacher. He could not match the eloquent speakers of his day. They allowed a man to have an affair with his stepmother and did not discipline. And when they did discipline, they were slow to restore the repentant brother. They took each other to court. They condoned a popular practice of the day where an older man would be given one pre-teenage boy to have sexual intercourse with. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, where Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were called. They slept with prostitutes. Some wanted divorces when they became Christians. Others refused to have sex with their spouses as though it was bad. Some ate food, sacrificed in a temple with complete disregard to how this made weaker brothers feel. Their worship was chaotic. They isolated the poor. They got drunk on the communion wine. They looked down upon people with lesser gifts in the church. They questioned the resurrection from the dead. They told Paul, we'll send you money and partner with you in the gospel. And they didn't keep their promise. And Paul had to say, hey, what you said you give, can you actually do that when I come? Here's the thing, Paul knew about all of this when he sat down to write this letter. 
We know he knows it because he tells us in verse 111 that, that Chloe, that, that it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Chloe could have been a woman who opened her house uh, for a house church, but, but she is reaching out to Paul, and we would call that gossip. We would call that, oh, she's slandering the church. She's not. She's reaching out to the apostle for help and for wisdom. But we also believe that they also had other letters that, that came to Paul. And so you will see a refrain, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, now concerning these matters, 725 and 81. And so what Paul has before him is a report, a report from Chloe about what's happening. And Paul also has a series of letters that they have written with him about questions. And so when Paul begins to write 1 Corinthians, I envision him having all of this in front of him. He knows and he, he builds this apostolic outline of the book of 1 Corinthians where he says, Lord, I got to address the prostitutes. I got to address sex. I got to address this. I got to address division. I got to address all of this. And the question becomes, how will you start this letter? That's a hard letter. I have to address their pride and prostitutes, their sex and singleness, their food and fellowship, their division and dissension, their worldly ways and their waywardness, their church discipline and their destroyed marriages. This is going to be a tough letter. How do I start it? What do I say to them? What do I call them? Now, let that shape how he begins the letter doesn't address them as sinning, lusting, suing, divisive, chaotic, drunken liars. There's a great omission in this letter, in this introduction. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. There is great praise in this introduction. Look at verse 8. In the end, you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is great confidence in this introduction. No trace of panic. Now, why is there a great omission of their glaring faults? Why is there great praise when Paul knows what he's about to write? Why is there great confidence when it is clear that this is a not so great church? Because Paul understands the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And behind the great doctrines is an even greater God. Paul is able to begin this book with this great introduction addressing a not so great church because God is great. Because their gospel is great. And Paul refuses to separate them from who they are in God. And therefore, it's fused in this introduction. He refuses to acknowledge them and to see them unless it is through who God is, what God has done, and what God is doing. That is shaping his great introduction. And this is what I want you and I to consider this morning. How great is your God? How great is the gospel? How big is God? How faithful is God? How good is the good news of Jesus to you? Because I have this feeling that we, it's okay. 
God, you're okay, and the gospel's just kind of okay, and and what Paul is doing in this introduction is saying God is great, and the gospel is greater than you can imagine, and it is even shaping how Paul addresses these sinners. And so, that's what I want us to think about. Paul seems to think that the solution to everything that is tearing the church apart flows out of beholding and believing and responding accordingly to the greatness of God. And so I want to start with this first point. I want to look at the great omission. Why why is there a great omission? Why does he not call them what he's going to call out in them later? Why does he not lead with that and address them in that way? Here's why. There's a great omission because he grasps biblical justification. Paul gets it. Now, it should come across as strange that he doesn't begin by calling them all the things he'll call out later. But Paul does use this verb call five times. And he wants us to see not necessarily what he would call them, but the God who calls. And so he opens it up by Paul, called to be by the will of God to be an apostle. So Paul is saying, I am an apostle because God called me. And then look at the next verse, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Let's just stop at the to the church. We translate that to the church. And here's what you probably think. You probably think Paul is addressing a big building that people come in for an hour and a half on a Sunday. And so he has a building in mind, and that's not true. We know it's not true because of where they are at this point in, in, in the missional um, movement of God. They're, they're in the house church phase, and so so much so that at the end of the book, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul will write, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you uh, hearty greetings. In Acts 18, when Paul left the Jewish synagogue, he went next door to the house of a man named Titius Justus. His house was right next door to the synagogue, and many Christians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so at this point, when Paul uses church, he's not talking about a big building. He's talking about something different. He's talking about the called out ones. And that's what R.C. Sproul says about this word church. It's ecclesia. It's, it's a word made up of a prefix and a root. And the prefix is ek. It means to be out, to call, to be out. And the root word is kaleo, which is the same word for Paul called to be an apostle. And so when Paul thinks about the church, he thinks about the church not just as a building. Buildings are great, but buildings are not the church. The church are the people in the church who God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when Paul even thinks about them, you are the called out ones. And then they respond to the calling out of God Now notice right there at the end of of verse 2, along with all those who in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. So there's another calling. God calls out to them, they respond, and then they cry out and call out to God. And then what does God do? Verse 3, he lavishes them with grace. Then he also makes them holy. Look at the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified past tense. 
Past tense, and so when you called out to God in faith, you were declared holy. You were made holy. You were set apart for his holy purposes in Christ Jesus. And third, there is now peace. That's why he says grace and peace through the work of Christ. And look at verse 9. You were also called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You are now in Christ. Your righteousness is in Christ. Sin atoned for in Christ. Wrath diverted in Christ. The fullness of the gifts come in Christ. Enriched in every way in Christ. And so you are in Christ. But here's the thing. You're called into the koinonia, the fellowship. Look at verse 9 of his son. But it's also, look at verse 2. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. You get Paul's vision for what it means to be a believer? You're in Jesus along with a big family of everyone else, everywhere else, who trust in Jesus. You used to be divided based on black and white and Asian and African and Ethiopian. But now you're one because you've bowed the knee and you've called out to King Jesus you're in that fellowship. This is a new family. And so in Paul's introduction, he will not address them based on what they've done. He addresses them based on what God has done. You're the church. You're already holy. You're already in Christ. You're already in fellowship with one another, even though your fellowship is fracturing. Why? Because Paul believes these not-so-great Christians have a great Savior. When God called them and they responded by calling out to him, something irrevocable happened. They are his forever. They are never defined by what they do, but by what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. Wrath has been diverted. God is not angry. I'm disappointed. We watched a movie, 13 Lives, this week, and uh, it's, a, it's the story of a Thai soccer team that was caught in the mountain, uh, in a mountain, in a cave for 10 days. And the boys went there exploring a cave and a monsoon came out of nowhere. And these ten bo nine boys and their coach were stuck in and they were on the brink of drowning. And 5,000 people plus came to their aid. They got world-class divers, engineers. They ordered water pumps and, and tried to pump the water out. And one volunteer was a water engineer. That's what he called himself. And he went and saw their setup and what they were doing. And he says, this is no good. You're pumping water out of the cave, but you're not dealing with how the water is getting into the cave. And so he walked on the mountain and you could see the rain flushing down the mountain. And it was entering into the cave where the boys were from the top and from holes in the mountain. And he says, you're wasting your time with the water pumps. You gotta divert this water from the top. And so he, he came up with a plan. We'll patch the holes and he cut bamboo poles and, and was diverging all of this water that would have gone down out and away. And here's a problem. At the bottom of the base of the mountain were some poor rice farmers. And so he called a meeting and he told them, these boys will die if we do not divert this water. 
and one woman got it. She says, what about our crops? And he says, you'll lose them. And so all the farmers, I mean, they gather together. What do we do? What do we do? This is a loss. This is a loss. And finally, they came back to him and says, we'll lose our crops so that those boys can live. And they diverted 56 million gallons of water onto their fields. And you could watch the water destroy everything in its path. This is what happened on the cross for you. You know that, right? There was 56 million gallons of wrath coming your way. And God was righteous. And the son says, Father, divert it. Divert it on me. I will lose everything if it means they live. And that is how God sees you right now. He sees you hiding in Jesus. He sees you with his wrath diverted elsewhere. He sees you as holy and righteous and justified in his sight. And this is true for you if you have trusted in Jesus. When you look in the mirror, you will be tempted to define yourself by what you've done and what you've left undone what others call you, what others won't call you, what others think about you. But God looks at you if you've bowed the knee to Jesus. And he says, you're mine. And you're holy. And you're loved. And you're in Jesus. And if this church is going to change, it's going to start there. What have you done for me in Christ This is why Paul omits calling them what they've done, because God, in a sense, has atoned for that. There's also great praise here because Paul grasps biblical sanctification. There is great praise because he grasps biblical sanctification. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about sanctification, I think about kind of growing up. And we had a a couple of sanctified families that went to high school with me. And what that meant kind of in my high school world was like the girl always wears like long dresses. And it like I just like my view of like sanctification or being sanctified was tied into this one family that I saw. Right. Like that. Like like they they, he I won't get into all the the caricatures. It's not important. But sanctification is a biblical word, and it's a biblical frame, and you see allusions to it here. Notice that Paul says at the beginning to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ. What does he mean? But then look, he continues that, and you're called to be saints. You're the holy ones. You've been set apart, and you're called to pursue and be holy. That, that's where the idea of sanctification comes. It comes from this passage. Now, think about these two things. Think about that God saved them and sanctified them and made them holy, and God calls them to be holy. So that's one point. Think about the other point. Read the rest of this book, and what you'll see is they were unholy, right? They were falling short. On the one hand, they're in Christ, but look at what Paul says. You're also in Corinth. You're in Christ, but you're in Corinth. 
And this is where the tension begins to happen because they're living out their sanctification in a place and a place impacts their growth. And this is why you see in this book, the things that are happening in the city is happening in the church that they were suing each other in the city and suing each other in the church, sleeping around in the city and sleeping around in the church, denying the resurrection in the city and denying it in the church. In other words, what they were doing in the church was looking more like the world around them rather than the new community, the new holy community God called them to be. And that's where the tension is because Jesus didn't say, leave Corinth and form your own city. He says, I want you to stay. And right there in that city, become holy. And Paul knew they fell short. But Paul actually says in verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you. Come on, like, like is that, am I the only one that that's kind of comical to? He says, every time I think about you, I, I thank God for you. I'm like, really? You just kidding, dog. Now think about this. I think there's some light comedy here. If you turn to, you don't have to, for Colossians 1.3, Philippians 1.3, Paul is in this habit of thanking God. I thank God for all of you, for their faith and their love, for all the saints and their partnership in the gospel. Now, I do want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.9. If you have that, look at that really quickly. 1 Thessalonians 2.9. I want to show you kind of this pattern that you see in Paul's letters. Here, look at it. We give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. For our gospel came not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. And you became imitators of us. You received the word in much affliction. You turned from God to God, from the idols to serve the living God. In other words, when Paul gives thanks in Philippians and Colossians and particularly Thessalonians, here's what he's giving thanks for. He's giving thanks for the grace of God that came to them and the other side of that, how they responded to that grace. And that is the difference between sanctification and justification. In justification, you and I contribute absolutely nothing to our being saved. That is totally the work of Jesus, totally his finished work on the cross. The only thing we contribute to our salvation when we're justified is our sin. Even the faith that we have is a gift. And God is gracious. We bring nothing to the table. But sanctification, Paul, the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter says, make your own calling and election sure. Paul would say, I work, but not I alone, but God who powerfully works within me. And so in sanctification, we receive the goodness of God. We receive the new heart. We receive the new desires, the Holy Spirit. God is doing all of that. And there is work for us to do to become more holy. We fight sin. We turn from it. We repent. We put to death. We cut off members. We fill our minds with truth. We delight in the law of the Lord. We gather with the saints. There is a work for us to do, positively speaking, in growing in holiness. And when Paul reads Colossians and Philippians and, and Thessalonians, that, that what he's doing there is thanking them. 
God did his part. And baby, y'all responded. Y'all did the work. Y'all partnered. Y'all prayed. Y'all loved. Now read this. What does he praise them for? Their fellowship of the saints? Nope. They're turning from idols? That ain't there. You know who he praises them for? God. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ. That in every way he, you, he, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, you are not lacking any grace gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose side of sanctification is Paul praising God for? God's side. God's side. You're slacking on your end, but God is not slacking. God will be relentless in making you holy. He will, through his appointed means of correction, the word, the spirit, one another, spiritual gifts given to the body, jumpstart their holiness. Paul understands they are more than what they appear. There is potential in them because of God. And this is good news for you this morning. If you feel stuck, unmotivated, stagnant, slipping, or indifferent, you will, if you are a child of God, grow in grace. You will, if you have the new heart, grow. You will, if you are a child of God, change. And it may be slow, slow as watching grass grow, but it will happen. Why? Because God is at work. This is why Paul gives thanks. And this should impact not only how we see ourselves, but one another. It's so easy in Christian circles to label people on account of something they've done. Oh, remember that time she said that and did that, and they become forever known by that? I remember that time he said that or did that, and every time you think of him, you associate him with that. But if we believe in biblical sanctification... God is changing them, and they are more than what you see right now. There's an article someone sent to me uh, about a month ago, and it says the title of it was, We Are More Than the Skeletons in Our Closet. He says, When someone does something wrong, many will shrink their entire life down to a single paragraph that narrates what happened on a day at a certain hour in a certain location. We can whittle an entire biography down to a single tweet. Just ask Thomas, the apostle. He's the only guy from Genesis to Revelation who has an unfavorable adjective sticking out like a pimple in the front of his name. We haven't christened them murdering Cain or womanizing David or betraying Judas. They gave us infamy, but we spared them the title to go along with it. For us, the defining moment for Thomas was when he was in the upper room, when he protested that he wouldn't believe in Jesus as being alive until he put his own finger in his womb. There, he became affectionately known to the world, not just as Thomas, but as what? Oh, so y'all got it. Doubting Thomas. But that's not the only story Thomas has a part to play. In John 11, Lazarus is sick. 
Jesus told his disciples, we're headed back to see him. They protest. It's a bad idea. They want to kill you. And Jesus says, it is good that Lazarus is dead for your sakes that, that you might believe. It appears that one of them did already believe. Without a shred of a doubt, one ounce of fear, one disciple said, let us go with you, master, that we may die with you. You know who said that? Thomas. That's conviction. That's backbone. That's courage. But no one calls him courageous Thomas or bold Thomas or believing Thomas. We remember him as doubting Thomas. Why? We prefer to remember people by the scandalous things they've done. We say that one episode of doubting Thomas is who you are and you'll never be different. We shouldn't do that. The Spirit is at work in our lives. Our lives are hidden with God. Christ lives in us. The Spirit is rewriting our life stories in crimson ink of Christ's blood. We can do very good things. God is rewriting our biographies. You catch that? This is why Paul can give thanks. Because they are not co-signed to what they're doing. He believes that their God is big and their God will make them holy. And therefore, they are more than meets the eye. This is why Paul praises, because he believes in God's role in our sanctification. Our last point, there is no panic in Paul because he grasps biblical glorification and preservation. I want you to look at this intro again. Do you sense any panic in Paul, any fear that they'll fall away, any panic that he wasted his time among them? You know, if you read the book of Galatians, where some were attempting to add to the work of Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. You have to believe in Jesus and add something to the mix. It was them that Paul wrote, oh, I'm afraid that I might have labored over you in vain. But there is no panic here. So on my day off, which is either a Friday or a Monday, I try to do something like useful with my hands. I read an article not long, well, several years ago that pastors who, you know, we, we write, we pray, we read, we sit down, we meet with people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera that on your days off, you have to do something different than what you do. And so on my days off, like I, I, I don't let my dad cut my grass anymore. I cut my own grass, right? I fired my mosquito spraying man and I spray our own, my yard for our own mosquitoes, right? I'm trying to get Robert Aiken to teach me how to roast some coffee. That's my next, that's my next thing. I, I want to take up coffee roasting. My refrigerator wasn't working and Thanks to YouTube, we were able to figure out that my motor in the back of the fan wasn't working. So I put my model number in and found the model number, ordered the part, watched YouTube and fixed my refrigerator. Some kids tore up the flapper valve on the toilet and I got to go put the toilet back together, right? Recess lighting that a contractor used years ago. I got to find those exact ones to put in my ceiling because they went out. This is kind of what I do on my day off. AC tensioner went out on the car. I'm trying to 
look at YouTube again and put a new tensioner on there. And, and this is what I do. And so I get these projects. And so there's a water spot on the ceiling. And Karen says, babe, we got some water coming down. I said, OK. So I went upstairs and obviously somebody took a shower and didn't have the shower curtain in. But that, that's not that's not that bad because that's what the caulking around the, the, the toilet and around the, the tub is for. The, the caulking keeps the water from kind of coming down to the second to the first floor. And so I went up and got a knife and started to cut out the old caulk. Yeah, I ain't caulked that in like 13 years. I probably need to finish that. And so I just got frustrated, like working in that little tiny space up there with a knife, trying to dig out all the old caulk. And finally, I just like put it down and just walked away. And then the next week came and I'm on to another project. And Karen said, babe, can you finish what you started? (laughs) We got guests coming next week and we got to have an upstairs shower. And so here I am begrudgingly going back to the store to get everything I need to get back up there and caulk. But here's the thing. I'm known for starting stuff and not completing it. And some of y'all husbands in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul says humans may be like this. But God is not. The reason Paul isn't panicking is because of Paul's doctrine of preservation and glorification. Paul knew that not only did God call them, that God was committed to their growth and grace, but the God who started the work in them would complete it. He would not forget about them or leave anything half done. And that's what you see in verses seven all the way down to the end. Look at look at it. You are not lacking in any gift. God has already given you everything you need as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul believes that Jesus has ascended and Jesus is returning and every man and woman and child will stand before his judgment seat. And the question becomes, who will sustain us until the end, guiltless in that day? And notice what Paul says in verse nine. God is faithful. God will do it. God will make sure that you who have been saved will be saved. God will make sure that you who are struggling at your sanctification, God himself will make you just as holy as he wants you to be, and he will bring you to glory. We often talk about perseverance of the saints. That's the P in TULIP. R.C. Sproul likes to link our perseverance to God's preservation of us. If it were up to me or you to stay in the fold, I'm done and you're done. But because God is preserving you, you will persevere until the end. You will on that day be declared blameless in the sight of Christ. Let this wash over your soul. Are you afraid of falling away? Do you wonder how you'll make it through the valley? Do you wonder if you'll wake up one day and lose your mind? I get the privilege of visiting one of our members every three weeks who has on Alzheimer's. And I get to cut his hair, and I get to sit with him, and I get to pray and read some psalms to him, and I'm watching him lose memory. 
What do you do with that? How will he be declared blameless in the day of the Lord? Do you think it's his memory of Jesus that's going to enable him to persevere? Or do you think it's God's memory of him that's keeping him and keeping his wife and keeping his kids? This is why Paul ain't panicking. It's because they will be sustained until the end, declared guiltless, because God is faithful. This great introduction for a not-so-great church and not-so-great Christians reminds us that our God is great and his gospel is good. Rest in it. This is why every church and every Christian, though imperfect, is still the most delightful community on the planet. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this good news, this good introduction. Thank you for reminding us that you have rescued us. You have called us. You have endowed us with everything needed for a life of godliness. You are pursuing us, and you will keep us blameless and guiltless until the day of Christ Jesus. The gospel is that good, and you are that great. I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you, and I pray, Lord, that you would indeed do the summoning and the calling to your Son where nothing in their hands they bring, but simply to your cross they cling. Would you be pleased, Lord Jesus, to rescue and save your people? We love you. In Christ's name, amen.